And I want to welcome all of you uh, to this is week three. Our series is called Thriving in Babylon. Um, and it is a study through the book of Daniel, which is extraordinarily relevant for the times that we are living in. And I invite you to, to take your Bible and open it up to Daniel chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Please feel free. And one of the chairs in front of you, feel free to grab that. Um, you can also find it easily on your uh, phone or device. But uh, in Daniel chapter three, you are going to find not only one of the best known stories in all of the Bible, but one that I just think for me and, and for something I long for in my heart, this, this desire to, to walk closely with God and to trust God even in the hard times, even when it feels like everything is pushing back against that, Daniel chapter 3 is just a great chapter um, for that this morning. Um, so we have a ton of ground to cover. It's kind of a long chapter, but before we jump into it, I wanted to share a concept with you that I first heard from another pastor over in Santa Cruz, a guy by the name of Renee Scheffler, talked about what he called a four dominant life principles. And the idea behind this is he was trying to explain why do we do the things that we do? What motivates us to make the decisions, to, to respond the way that we do to different situations. And he suggested, not super scientifically, but he suggested kind of four different life principles that, 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 that motivate the way that we make decisions and make the thousands of choices that we all make every day. So they're in your notes. The first one is this, and that is circumstances. So if circumstances are driving you, you ask, you know, how are things going on around me? What's happening around me? If things are going good, I'm good. If things are going bad, then, you know, my life is a mess and falling apart. And circumstances can affect uh, not only our mood, you know, but it can also affect the decisions that we make. So that's one of them. Second one uh, is one that's very popular in kind of American culture, and that is convenience. The question here is, what is the easiest? What is the path of least resistance? And I find that easiest path, and then I just kind of go with the flow, and it's very easy to fall into that. Yet the expression goes that, you know, even a dead fish floats downstream, and so the goal is not just to go with the flow so much, because we find that the convenient choice is rarely the best choice. Third one, uh, third life principle is criticism, or better yet, the way to say that is the fear of criticism, because the, the motivating factor here is what will other people think about me? And a lot of times we kind of call out teenagers as people that kind of fall into peer pressure, but the reality is I know a lot of adults that are driven by this. You know, what are people going to think about me more than just what's right or wrong? And then the fourth principle, and this is the one that we're really going to zero in on today because it's what we see in Daniel chapter 3, and that is conviction. Conviction. So the motivating factor, what causes me to make the decisions I make and do the things I do, is, is my best to understand what is the right thing to do. What is the good and the right thing to do? And so what I'd like all of us to be able to do is kind of look at that list and, and find where do you think that you might fall on that list. Because as we talk about conviction today, which is, as I said, really what our passage is about, we're going to see that conviction, when you drill down into the life of people that are really making a difference, are people that are really following after God, one of the things you're going to often find is this dominant life principle of conviction. In fact, before we jump into our passage, um, Renee gave actually a few different kind of historical examples. And so let me just share uh, from a few figures in history. And as I share these, see if you can identify what is their dominant life 
principle. And the first one is a guy by the name of William. William, at age 26, was in the British Parliament. He was a member of the Parliament when a friend shared the gospel with him as a 26-year-old. His heart was strangely warmed. He accepted Christ and began to follow Jesus as, as a Christian. Almost right away, he came under an understanding that he wasn't born and put in this position of of privilege and power just to kind of cruise through life, but he was actually called to make a difference. Specifically, he felt that God was calling him to stand up and be a voice for the abolition of slavery. Now, of course, that was very common at the day, and so people said, you know, you can't push back against an institution that big and that powerful. Just leave it alone. Just go with the flow, they told William, but he wouldn't let it go. And in fact, William Wilberforce eventually becomes probably the most prominent voice for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, which eventually spreads across the world. Or how about this one? This uh, girl's name is Amy. Amy is amazing because she was only 17 years old, 17, when she announced to her wealthy Scottish family that God had called her to leave home and go as a missionary to India. So try to imagine what you would say if your 17-year-old daughter came to you and said, I'd like to move away and I'd like to move to India and become a missionary to the poorest of the poor. Um, My daughter, my 21-year-old daughter, just got back from a three-week mission trip in the Philippines in 2023, and she flew there on a very comfortable airplane, and I still worried about her every single day. So try to imagine your 17-year-old back in the 1800s when not only was it an extraordinarily dangerous place to go, but women didn't necessarily do that. And she wasn't going on an airplane. She was going on a boat in a buggy to get there. And yet Amy Carmichael, if you don't know her name, you should. Amy Carmichael was called to serve the poor in India, and that is what she did. She served as a missionary for 55 years. She wrote 35 books and is really considered one of the the, the leading voices in what we now think of when we think of modern uh, missions, and that is Amy. Or how about this guy? A couple more. Uh, This guy's name is Joe. Joe was also brilliant like William and Amy was, but unlike those two, he didn't come from a wealthy family. He actually came up out of a lot of poverty, um, but had a sharp mind. And by the age of 20, he already had two college degrees. He was enrolled, you might be surprised to know this, in seminary at kind of the the leading seminary in his uh, home country and was training to go into the ministry. When his convictions changed, he dropped out of seminary and he decided to start an underground newspaper. This underground newspaper eventually became a political party. This political party eventually became known as the Communist Party. Because you see, Joseph Stalin uh, had these deep convictions about this. Later on, he would send millions of people to, to forced labor camps. He would starve millions of others through you know, forced uh, famine. Yet his convictions, as deranged as they were, led him to have a huge impact on millions and millions of people throughout history. One more. Let me just share this one because I love the story of Kathy. If you don't know about Kathy, you should know about her as well because she was another one who lived in England in the 1800s. As a 14-year-old, she came under the conviction that, this is what she would say, that, that alcoholics were people too. Because in those days, in the place that she lived, um, addicts were kind of left to wander the street or sent to mental institutions. And as a follower of Jesus, Amy had, or, uh, Kathy had this deep conviction that all people were valuable and deserved to be cared for and loved. Um, So again, her wealthy parents, 
her church family, her school, pretty much everyone said, Kathy, what are you doing? You can't keep going down and giving things away to the poor. You can't keep preaching to the addict. You've got to, you know, you've got to stop. You've got to just go with the flow with this thing. There was actually only one person who really believed in her mission, and eventually he fell in love with her. And he said, not only do I believe in your mission, but let's get married and do this together. And eventually, uh, that marriage, out of that marriage came an army. And that army is still active all around the world today, includes having a big impact right here in our city, because Catherine Booth, along with William Booth, were the founders of the Salvation Army. And so you could go on and on with these kind of things, but what I asked you to look at is when you think about these kind of young people and what they had in common, did you notice that good or bad, all of them had their, as their dominant life principle, conviction. It wasn't circumstances that drove them. It wasn't what was easiest and convenient. It wasn't, uh, you know, criticism or worrying what people thought about them. It was this conviction to do what they believed was the right thing to do, and more importantly, what they believed God said was the right thing to do. And so today, as we look at Daniel chapter 3, we are going to actually see three more people uh, that fall into kind of that same idea. And these are three uh, young Jewish men living as exiles in Babylon. So living in a culture that is very different than the one that God set up for them to live in. So Daniel chapter 3, kind of a long story. We are not going to read every word of it, um, but we're going to kind of break it up into four six different movements, so six different sections. And because preachers love this stuff, all of them are going to start with the letter C, which means that this must be from God, right? If they all start with the same letter, preachers think that it's definitely from God. And so that's uh, what we got going here today. Well, let's jump in. Daniel chapter 3, the first thing is this. We need to talk about the context. We need to talk about kind of the background of this story, which includes the plains of Dura, a gold statue, and a command for every nation and language. Every nation and language. So let's jump into the story. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, begins like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. So that's about 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, so almost 9 stories tall. And he set this image in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, uh, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. He gathered all his leaders together to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, all... Uh, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald, a man came out and proclaimed loudly, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so that is obviously the context uh, that goes into this story. And if you know, uh, these three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with their Jewish background, were not supposed to bow down to anything except to God. 
So let's talk about this. First of all, we're told that this takes place in the plains of Dura. That seems like kind of a a small, insignificant little thing, although the history of it is is pretty important. And we're going to get to the the history of it in a minute. But also kind of the landscape of that area is also important. You can see there, it exists between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's kind of one of the fertile places in a very desert um, place. And all around the plains of Dura, there are these kind of high places that you could almost picture as like a stage, like people would stand up and, and perform um, on that. You look at that and you could say, this is almost like a place you would hold like a, a music festival. Like, you know, Babylonian Coachella would be at a, a place like this. Everybody would come there. And that's exactly what happens. There's this brig group that comes. They're from all different nations and languages. And once they're gathered together, this guy stands up. He's like the MC, And he's like, all right, Babylon, welcome. Are you guys ready to rock? And it was, ah, they you know, shout back to him. And he's like, well, you know, we got the best harp and zither music in the world today. You know, you're going to be blown away by this. And he's like, before I bring the band out, there's just a little something you need to know. We've got snacks over here, t-shirts back there, restrooms over here, and oh yeah, this golden idol over here. When the music starts, uh, everybody bows down and worships, and if not, you are um, thrown in the fiery furnace. All right, let's welcome the band to the stage. You know, you can almost just picture how this thing happened, and whether that happened or, uh, or not, what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar makes this really strange declaration, because if you remember just last week in Daniel chapter 2, we see that, that he has this dream about this giant statue, and Daniel helps interpret it, and in this dream, the, the head of the giant statue statue is made of gold, and that represents Babylon. And now all, eventually, all of the, the different parts of this statue in his dream uh, fall and are, 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 you know, put to ruin. But when he puts a whole giant statue made of gold, it's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is saying to God, I will rule forever, right? Babylon is the one thing that will never end and will never change. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws this down that everybody has to worship here at the plains of Dura, this giant um, statue. And it's significant, um, uh, the plains of Dura, not just because of their, um, because of their, the, the location, but also there's this command that all nations and people of every language are to bow down and worship. Now, if you've been around the Bible much at all, you know this phrase or this concept of all nations and people of every language is a very important concept for understanding the Bible. We see it time and time again in one way or another that that all the nations, all the people, all the languages, God loves and cares about them and belong to God. This is significant because the last time we saw a gathering like this in the Bible on the plain of Dura is in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, that's what's known as the Tower of Babel. When people come together from all different places and kind of a way of showing that, that people are, you know, so powerful and humanity is so great, they build this giant tower as a way of saying, we can get to heaven on our own. We don't need God. So it's like, look how great humanity is. We don't need God. And that's the message in Genesis chapter 11. Well, at that point, God would have been well within his rights to come and bring a a punishment on those people. He could have wiped them out. But what God does in that story is the Tower of Babel is when God begins to separate out the nations. And, And the nations start to spread out around the earth and the different languages start to develop. So that's the first time you see nations 
and languages, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 12 is a super significant passage because the very next chapter is when we read about the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be the the Jewish people. You're going to be my chosen people. But it's not just so that they could be the chosen people. Notice a big part of why he's got this covenant with Abraham is so that one day from you can be a blessing to all the nations. I separated them back there in Genesis 11, but I have not forgotten them. I love them deeply. You see, God, in fact, loves the whole world so much, meaning all nations and all people, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through him and through his offspring, through Jesus Christ. And the final fulfillment of this you read about specifically in the book of Revelation when it says, as far as the eye can see, there are people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue and they fall down and they worship Jesus on the throne. But in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to force their hand. And so what I want you to see is this is not like a little Sunday school story for children. This is actually, you guys, the heart of the human struggle right here in Daniel chapter 3. Are you going to follow after God or are you going to follow after all of these other things that will ask you to bow down and worship and follow after them? And so Nebuchadnezzar forces his hand, and that's kind of the context of this whole thing. And that leads to the next C, which is there's going to be some conflict. And the conflict comes like this. The music starts, everybody hits the ground, bows down in worship, just like they were told, except three. These three Jewish guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down and worship. In fact, maybe you've seen a picture like this um, of this is specifically Muslim men in the Middle East where everybody's bowing down, right? And that's one of the things. Everybody bows down. It's very uniform. Try to imagine a picture like that, except there are three people standing up in the middle of it. Everyone's bowing down except these three. So you can see there's going to be a conflict. In fact, some of the people that were bowing down in verse 8, it says that they went to King Nebuchadnezzar and, and they had denounced the Jews. They said, you know, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you gave us this command that we're supposed to bow down and worship. Great idea. Love it. Good idea. Um, But there's these three Jewish guys that are not bowing down. So um, you better go get them, right? So that's the conflict. Well, the conflict leads to a challenge because now the challenge has been thrown down. And the challenge is this, bow or burn. What are you going to do? You're going to bow down or are you going to burn? Why do I say that? Look at verse 13 of Daniel chapter 3. It says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, 
very good, all's forgotten. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace, and what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. And and so we see that there's this clear challenge given to these three Jewish young men. And it's like the circumstances are very clear. This is the command. Uh, The the convenience is is all you got to do. It's just simple. Just bow down. Just go along with everybody else. Why, you know, you're going to not face any criticism if you just go along with this. So they throw down this idea to these Jewish guys, you've got to bow down and worship. Implied in this would have been you don't have to give up your Jewish God. You can still worship Yahweh, but just don't go crazy with it, right? Just be rational with it. You can still worship these other things as well. And that's a pressure that, of course, we still feel to this day. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus. You can be a person of faith, and that is great, but just just don't go crazy with it, right? And yet we see that they have this uh, conviction, uh, this idea that they will not bow. So the gauntlet is thrown down. Bow or burn, what are they going to do? I was actually reading this passage in my Life Application Study Bible, and um, they had a, a list there of different things that these guys could have done, eight different uh, responses that they could have made at this point, and I'm sure there's more, but I thought this was just kind of an interesting list. So what could they have done at this point to just justify going along with the crowd? Number one, they could have done this. They could have said, well, okay, we're going to fall down, but we're not going to actually worship the idol, right? So we'll look like it. We'll just go along, but we're not going to actually worship, and They could have tried to justify it like that. Or they could have said, well, we'll just do it this one time. We'll just get this one time deal, and then we know that God's forgiving, and so we'll ask for forgiveness, so just one time. And yet, how many bad and destructive habits have begun with that sort of logic? They could have said this, well, hey, the king has absolute power, and so we must obey him, and God will understand. It kind of even went like this, God, you brought us to Babylon, you put us under this king, so it's kind of your fault, so we've got to go along with it. Um, They could have said the king appointed us, we owe it to him, because remember, they're even a part of this group of of leaders in Babylon, because God was with them, and they were kind of rising in the ranks. Um, They could have said this, oh, hey, it's just a foreign land that we're in, and so God's going to excuse us, you know, even though we know we're not supposed to bow down. We'll go along with the customs of the, the, the Babylon. Or they could have said, you know, our ancestors, and this is a common one, our ancestors set up idols in the temple. And so what we're doing is not as bad as that. And it's really tempting to justify the sin that we do by saying, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And so here's your scale of morality. And you think, you know, as long as I'm just a little bit ahead of, of those other people. But that's not how God gives it to us. God gives us a law, and he says to follow after him. Or they could have said, well, hey, we're not hurting anybody. You know, it's just kind of a victimless sin to, to bow down. Or they could have said, you know what, if we get ourselves killed, then who's going to, you know, advocate and, and help the, the Jewish people in exile? So in other words, the point is they could have come up with all sorts of different excuses, all sorts of different ways to justify, I'm just going to go along with the crowd. I'm just going to do what's easiest. I'm just going to do what the circumstances demand. And yet what we see next after this is their conviction. And their conviction is this. We will not bow. This is really the heart of the passage. Verse 16 says this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, excuse me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, uh, replied to the king. 
replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's, uh, from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I love the courageous response of these three young men. You see, this is the model of conviction and courage that we're talking about. And I want you to notice where their conviction comes from. Because as you pull apart those verses that we just saw, I actually think there's kind of three core beliefs or three kind of core values that are the the convictions behind their decision. And the first one is this. They have a deep conviction that God is is able. They can say, I believe God is able and he will deliver us. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew God's word. They knew that that God had promised that he would not abandon them. Um, And so I'm sure the rest of the crowd looked at these three guys standing alone and thought, what are these guys doing? They look so small and weak, you know, next to Nebuchadnezzar and the statue. And yet that's not how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought. They looked and they saw the statue. They saw Nebuchadnezzar. They saw everybody else bowing down. And they thought, how puny all that looks compared to our God. And our God is able to deliver us even when it seems like there's nothing else that can. And you guys, this is a core to our Christian belief. This is something I'm longing for more of in my life. Quite honestly, I'm longing for it more in your life. I'm longing for it as a church, that we would have a deep faith that God is able, that God is good, that God is powerful, that God can do these things. And this conviction leads them to take this stand. So they believe, first of all, that God is able. But more than that, they also expect that God will deliver. God will deliver them. Not only is God able, but he's going to rescue them, is what they say. They trusted God to deliver them. And though these guys, it's not like they'd had a perfect life. They'd experienced tragedy in their life. They'd experienced their beloved Jerusalem being destroyed and then being pulled away into exile. And yet still, not only have they trusted God's word, but they trusted what they've seen, they've seen, and they knew that God would deliver them. And they had this expectation, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? And they believed that God would do that. But finally, the third conviction, and is maybe the most powerful one of all, is they are going to trust God even if they don't. And he says, we still will worship God. You see, faith in God is not some magic formula. God is not a vending machine where we put something in and he automatically spits something out. God is not required to give us something back. He is not a genie in the lap, a lamp. I think the most courageous thing they say is, we believe God is able, we expect that he will, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship your gods because we worship this great and awesome God. You guys, this is the heart of it. We actually could spend a lot more time in that. But again, I ask, is that the kind of faith 
that you're experiencing. I long, that for, long for that for my life. I long for that for our church, and I long for that for you. That's their kind of conviction. But here's the deal. Their conviction very quickly leads to the fifth C, which is the consequences. And the consequences are these. That furnace, you guys, was hot. That furnace was very hot. In fact, Daniel 3.19 says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. They ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. That's kind of an idiom, an expression to say, as hot as you can make it. Just, you know, turn it up to 11, if you will. As hot as you can make it, make it that hot. In fact, when they grabbed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the guards took them to throw them in the fire, the guards were burned up by even getting close to the fire, and they were thrown into the fire fiery furnace. And friends, we need to know this so very clearly, that sometimes we can stand for our convictions, even when they're right, even when they are what God says, and we will still be thrown into the fire. And it's okay. So let's just think through where we've come in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, have to stand up and say, we're not going to eat the king's food. And so they take this stand, and eventually they're healthier than everybody else, and God promotes them because of this, you know, righteous stand that they take. Then in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel again kind of takes this righteous stand to, to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream faithfully, and he tells the king some really bad news, but he does it faithfully. And what happens to Daniel? He gets promoted Here in Daniel chapter 3, we see them take the same kind of stand, yet they're not promoted, at least at this point, but they are thrown into the fire. And as one of your pastors, we just need to talk honestly about this. In the days in which we live, and in the days which seem to be coming, there will be times when not only will it not be popular to follow God, but there will be consequences. And you guys, it's okay. It's okay. We will take our place with the Christians for the last 2,000 years who have known that Christ is with us no matter what comes our way. We don't have to be jerks about it. We don't got to be mean about it. But we can live with confidence and a conviction that I can live what God says to to do no matter what. Well, you say, Glenn, how in the world can you know it's going to be okay? I can tell you why I believe that, because the very next thing that happens is a champion enters into the scene, and this is where we'll kind of wrap the story up. In verse 23, it says this, the champion says, or as we see the champion, what we see is that there is another in the fire with them. Verse 23 says, these three men, finally, uh, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, Then Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see what? How many? Four men. Four men walking around in the fire. And what are they? Unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. You guys, there was a fourth man in the fire with them. And Nebuchadnezzar identifies it. He says, that one looks like a son of God. Now, on this side of the New Testament and on this side of history, we can say with quite a bit of confidence that that was the son of God. 
We're not told exactly. It could have been an angel or something like that, but most scholars or many scholars would, would say that this is one of the times, one of the several times in the Old Testament where we have a theophany, where we have a pre-incarnate appearance of specifically the second person of the Godhead. Jesus Christ is with them in the fire. Because the reality of the Christian faith is this. God is able and Christ is able to deliver us. We expect that he will. But even if he does not, he will not abandon us. And he will be with us. There's one more scripture outside of the book of Daniel that's super significant for this. It was uh, also a part of Isaiah when he is writing to exile. So again, he's writing to people that are living in Babylon, and this is what he says in Isaiah 43, verse 1. It says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. In other words, he says, you're over in Babylon, but I still see you, and I still know your name, and I still made you, and I'm still with you. So do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames will not set you ablaze. You see, that is a promise that was fulfilled because for them, there was a fourth man in the fire. Jesus was with them. A few years ago, I read a fascinating book, great book, um, uh, about the life of and really the, the mission of, of Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton was a British explorer, uh, took it upon himself to explore specifically the South Pole. And he had his uh, boat, the Endurance, and they, they went down, and it was just one challenge after another, as you can imagine, exploring that part of the world in that time. And they went down, and eventually the Endurance got stuck in the ice. The ice kind of came in quicker than they thought. And not only did they get stuck in the ice, but the ice squeezed in and crushed their boat. And so these guys were stranded in the South Pole, basically on these, you know, um, icebergs, and they didn't know what to do. Well, they had one uh, lifeboat, I guess you would call it, and so they decided that three men would get in this boat and that they would set off to try to find help. So Shackleton and two other men got in this boat, and they pushed off into the cold, stormy, very dark South Atlantic Sea. They traveled for eight hundred miles before they finally came to something. And they found help. Eventually, the people were able to go back. And, and I believe, if not everybody, almost every single person um, was saved because of that. Well, Shackleton wasn't known as a real person of faith, but something happened to him out there on the boat that really changed that. In fact, it's not mentioned in the book Endurance, but if you go back and you read some of the speeches that Shackleton gave when he goes back to England, and he becomes this kind of big hero, and so he's invited to give these speeches at at different places, and he would always talk about the same thing. He would say, the three of us were out there on this journey, and we didn't know exactly where we were going. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we had this strange feeling that there was a divine presence with us. This was not a guy with a big Christian background. He barely had the words to explain it. He said there was like this higher presence that was with us, and all of us felt it, and all of us came to believe it. He said, eventually, we named this comforting presence with us the fourth man in the boat. They said we'd have the fourth man in the boat as we traveled. And so here's the application I'd like to give to you guys today. As you think about the fourth man in the fire, as you think about the fourth man in the boat, my so what is this? May the fourth be with you. May the, I know that's a long way to go on that. I guess it's, 
A little corny, but hopefully it makes a point. Do you see that? So here's what I believe about the man that was in the fire and probably the man that was in the boat. Jesus was there with them anyways, right? Jesus is there. His promise is, I will never leave you. It's not like they went into the fire alone, but for whatever reason, in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes were opened and their eyes were opened and they saw the the fourth man with him. That's my prayer for you. Would your eyes be open to see the God who is there with you today? And that's Jesus Christ with us. Because you know what this whole thing prefigures? This whole story of Jesus in the fire with them prefigures Jesus' work on the cross. Because there's this beautiful expression that says Nebuchadnezzar looks in and not only are there four men, but they are unbound and unharmed. And that describes the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Though we deserved punishment, we deserve to be thrown into the fire, Right? Because of, because, well, though we deserve it, Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. And because he goes to the cross on our behalf, we can live a life that is unbound and unharmed. Unbound by the shackles of sin and unharmed by the, the fear of death. We will one day live forever with him. It's Jesus' work on the cross, and we see it right here in the Old Testament. That's why it's so appropriate that we're going to kind of begin to wrap up today's service by celebrating communion together. And this is the way we often do this here at First Baptist. On the first Sunday of the month, we gather together and we take our place in in line with the church that has been doing this for 2,000 years. Since Jesus gathered together on the night that he was to be betrayed and, and go to the cross, Jesus gathered together with his disciples like we're with the disciples here today. And Jesus says, he says, I'm going to explain how my, this relationship with, with me is going to work. There's going to be some changes because my body is going to be, be broken. And he says, every time you eat this bread, you're going to do it in remembrance of me. And he says, my blood that is about to be poured out is going to be the blood of a new covenant. That covenant that was began way back with Abraham is now going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so every time you drink of the cup, you'll remember me and what I've done. That speaks to his body and his blood poured out. So I often say here at First Baptist Church, we celebrate an an open communion, meaning you don't need to be a member of this church. But what we do see is the pattern of Scripture is that communion is for those that have placed their trust in Jesus. And I say that today to invite you to the table because maybe you have never quite understood these things or it's all kind of new to you, but you're ready to say, hey, I might not understand it all, but I'm ready to begin that relationship. You can do that today. You can do that right in your seat. Jesus, I don't understand, but I know I need you with me, and I trust that you are there with me, and so I open my heart, and I open my life. Because of your body broken and because of your blood shed, I can be forgiven for my sins. So Jesus, come into my life. I begin that relationship with you, and you could do that today. I invite you to do that even as uh, we pass it around. So here's uh, what we're going to do. Um, We are going to pass out the bread. And if everybody would hold on to the bread after you've received that, um, then I'll lead us all of it eating together. Um, And then uh, after a little bit, then the cup will come around. And then as a a sign of your personal relationship with Christ, you can take that whenever you want. But I want to invite Will Johnson, um, a leader in our church, to come and uh, lead us in a word of prayer. So thank you, Will, for doing that. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we just uh, come to you as you instructed us to remember you, Father, that uh, Christ went to the cross voluntarily, Father. It was your will he do so, Father. 
he uh, he was human in nature, Father, but he he knew that he had to follow your instructions, Father. The pain that he endured was a sacrifice for us, Father. We take it, take the bread, Father. We are we are recognizing that this sacrifice for us was a lasting trust in you, Father. Take this time, Father. Bless this bread to our bodies, Father, and please guide us in future endeavors. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The body of Christ given to you. Let's eat it together in remembrance of him. All right, I want to invite Steve Johnson to come and lead us in a word of prayer for the cup. Shall we bow? Heavenly Father, once a month we come here, and it's not enough, Lord, to really realize what this cup represents. It's salvation through you. We just pray, Lord, for all those hearts that are troubled right now, and just know that the power of your salvation is more powerful than anything, and how much that you love us. We pray, Lord, that we take this cup in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What amazing words those are, that he's with us, whatever we go through, and he makes the darkness tremble. So, hey, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what those challenges look like for you this week, but this I know, Jesus is with you. Would your eyes be opened up to see his greatness? Would you walk in his spirit? Would you be faithful to him and trust that he is going to take care of the rest? Be my privilege to send us out with a word of prayer and blessing. Father, we thank you so much. Your church family is gathered together here today. Father, we've opened up your word together. We've been encouraged and inspired by it. Father, we've uh, sung these songs to you. Father, we've taken the, the, the bread and the cup to remember your greatness. And now we go to love and to serve you. Help us to love one another. Help us to be a light in this community and in this world because we know we do not go alone. You are before us. We thank you for that. And we go in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you and have a great, great day.